Assalamu alaikum everybody, Ramadan Mubarak, and uh, I'm kind of wearing a lot of hats today. So I'm the sound person, the camera person, the question person, the moderator, so please be patient with me. Um, oh, and hold on, I did not do my duty of turning on this recorder, Wait a second. So I just, I want to welcome everybody to this Q&A session. And um, these are always my favorite sessions because it's such a wonderful way to know like what is on people's minds. And um, we got a lot of questions from around the world. Thank you so much. And we have people online too who are going to be submitting questions. So I'm going to be the question person too. Um, and so we'll try to cover a, a large range. I think we got way more questions than we'll be able to address in the session today. But so we'll hold on to some of them and hopefully we can touch on um, some of these questions in the next halakha if we don't get to them today or you know, some, sometime in the future because definitely they're all really important questions and they're all um, at different points in a person's journey. Um, so hopefully we can, we can try to cover a lot of ground today. I think our goal is to, again, try and finish by about 7 o'clock-ish um, so that we don't interfere with anyone's iftar plans. Um, and I just wanted to just very quickly um, call out um, or highlight, I guess, the fundraising. You know, alhamdulillah that we're in the last final nights of Ramadan, and it's a wonderful time, um, definitely. People have been so generous in donations. Um, we have a launch good. Um, campaign going on right now um, and then also you know as usual you can always go to the Usuli website and donate and um, I still have some of these really cool Usuli t-shirts and so um, I don't know if you guys can see it but it says Usuli agent of change seeker of beauty lover of justice example of mercy kindness practitioner critical thinker spiritual elevationist and Muslim and so I would be very happy um, if anyone donates or if you've already donated and you would like a shirt, um, then just email me at grace at usuli.org. It comes in black and white and then adult, small, medium, large and extra large. And I would be more than happy to send you one um, as a thank you for your do donation. And so many people have been so kind and I pray that Allah will exponentially you know, reward you and bless you. Um, Dr. Abul Fadl gave a really powerful little um, talk and at the end of the last halakha explaining the importance of supporting intellectual causes, especially in this time of Islamophobia. So I think um, you know, you're in a really special category if um, you support intellectual causes and we try to do our best here to advance you know, critical thinking and um, address you know, issues that other organizations don't address. So um, I hope that you know, we have a lot of things that we would love to be able to do. And so inshallah, inshallah, as more people learn about our, our goals and you know, get behind us that hopefully we'll be able to do some of those things. Um, just to give you a, a flavor, um, I'm really excited to say that you know, we are working on um, transcribing and editing um, and publishing the professor's khutbahs and tafsir. And this is a huge project, but we've started and um, so, you know, this is exciting. I've always wanted to launch the Usuli Press so we can publish, you know, really smart work um, and preserve a lot of this knowledge. And so um, your donation would definitely help us in achieving those goals and being able to do more of, of what we do. So with that, anyway, so please um, remember us in your dua and, um, and also, you know, um, in your 
support and it's zakat eligible, so it counts as your zakat. Um, and thank you so much again to everyone who's already donated. Um, and then just as a personal thing, I just wanted to ask if you please make du'at for us and especially for Dr. Abul Fadl. Um, you know, as you can see, we're still um, kind of, we're still adjusting to the reality of him not being able to hear, but you know, his, um, and we would appreciate any prayers for, um, for healing. So, um, and with that, um, I have a lot of different questions. Definitely send in um, questions on the YouTube live stream and I will be um, forwarding, kind of figuring out how to manage. Um, so I think to start, um, we'll start with um, some questions related to Ramadan since they're very, um, you know, timely, obviously. And the first question has to do with zakah. Um, a lot of Muslim organizations and communities in some countries claim that, there are, that they are the only legitimate representatives to which zakat can be given and that it cannot be distributed individually because the Prophet, um, peace be upon him, established um, that to which, zakat, to, which, to which places zakat should be given. And the question is, is it okay or, um, to donate directly to the poor um, and needy, or does it need to be through an organization which claims to be a legitimate representative? Um, in some places, it seems that maybe um, some communities use this as a way to um, hold on to power. Um, and so, and there are some organizations that, um, and along those lines too, there's some organizations that are trying to pool money for their particular locale, um, as opposed to a worldwide thing. So um, he's asking if, um, you can talk about giving don uh, zakat to local efforts as opposed to worldwide efforts. So let me start with that. And I'm going to just jump off. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Um, although I, I, I can't see you, uh, I can see Rami and Mama. Um, uh, and uh, I. I had an opportunity to um, look through the questions that were sent in in writing, and there there are a lot. So and and they're all important questions. So I don't know how Grace is going to uh, pick between them. There there are just there were so many, and it. Um, I I have to say I mean I was surprised because I I didn't expect that there would be this flood of questions, but it. It really underscores the um, how much we we need um, these type of conversations, uh, and so maybe um, maybe we should do more of these. I'm I'm uh, I'm not sure. Just that they're they they came literally from all over and many different countries and. They, they raise many different types of issues. Inshallah, I'll try to do our best. Uh, I'll try to, um, so we can get, we can cover as many of them as possible, plus the questions that people might be sending in. So I'll, I'll try to be succinct in my responses rather than going off uh, in great detail, but then we won't cover as much. Okay, yeah. um, okay so the uh, zakah question. Um, 
okay, so first, let's distinguish between zakah and taxes. The, the, the zakat, especially zakat al-amwal, uh, are not intended to be the taxes that is the state um, exacts. So the, the, the zakat is different from kharaj, uh, the which is basically the kharaj are taxes, whether they are taxes on crop or taxes on uh, industry or taxes on uh, income. Kharaj literally means something that you take from what is coming in, so what uh, the the income that people have, zakat al amwal is the is is some that has a sum of money that has pietistic or spiritual purposes. Now the the confusion often arises from the uh, Islamic history because. In the earliest sources, the word zakah would be used uh, to describe what people paid. And if you're not um, a historian, you are not sure whether you are you're reading uh, about zakat al-amwal or about the kharaj, the, the taxes that the, the state levied on various incomes and, and so on. So, but to get closer to the point, because I don't want to, we can, we can talk about zakah, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very big topic. Does the zakah have to go to a central authority like a government? that is properly constituted and, and so on. So if you live in Pakistan or you live in Egypt or you live in, in any of the Muslim countries, uh, do you have to pay the zakah to the government? And the answer is no. Uh, the zakah has a certain masarif, mean, meaning that by by the law of the zakat itself, there are certain things that you can spend the zakat in. There are certain uh, objectives um, that, that the zakat is given for. Um, depending on your local reality, some countries the zakah is collected by the Awqaf, a ministry of waqf, or the Awqaf. The problem with this is that in a lot of countries, uh, that these ministries are very corrupt. And so when the government encourages people to give, to give them its zakah and says, give me your zakat al-amwal and I will spend it for you. Uh, and usually a ministry of Awqaf, a ministry of endowments, or a ministry of religious affairs is the one that performs that role. The problem 
in, in many countries, unfortunately, is corruption. So what percentage of that zakah actually ends up going to orphans or going to uh, whatever the government says it will spend your zakah money on? Um, it's a problem. So for instance, I've had a number of experiences with um, various institutions, governmental institutions in Egypt that encourage people to um, encourage people to to pay their zakat to it, but in through various situations, um, it came as, as a huge disappointment for me to realize that the amount of corruption that exists in these institutions. So you give money, the, uh, and the government says that it will spend it on hospitals that, for instance, work on cancer, um, treating children from cancer. But then when, through various interactions, it, it, you know, I, I learned that actually a very little amount of that zakat ends up going to help patients, and most of it goes for administrative cost. In other words, corrupt bureaucrats enriching themselves. Um, now, of course, these governmental institutions are already being funded by your taxes. So in these types of situations, if you know that or if you suspect or if you have knowledge um, that the, uh, where you live, that the governmental institutions that encourage you to pay the zakat to are corrupt, I would say, no, don't, don't give them your money. Redistribute the zakat di directly. Uh, don't go through these corrupt governmental institutions. If we are talking about an NGO, a non-governmental entity, and it's trustworthy, and its financial data is public, so in other words, you can look them up and see their their uh, paperwork, how much they spend on administrative costs, what percentage of the donations actually goes to their intended recipients, um, then there is no problem giving these types of organizations. Uh, so there are several humanistic Muslim organizations that help um, uh, refugees, uh, help Palestinians, help Syrians, help Afghanis, and so on, They're, and some of them are good, uh, then there's no problem with giving these types of organizations your zakah. Fiqh zakah, the, the law of zakah gives priority in degrees. So first priority in zakah money goes to those who are closest to you. Then to your locality, your, your, your village, then your town, and then your country, and then, so in other words, you're, you're branching outward. So our inherited jurisprudence, our inherited jurisprudence says that when you spend your zakah, preference should go to those that are closest to you in relationship and in geography. The 
the Nazila, the Nazila, the new, the, the sort of new legal challenge, new legal types, novel legal issues, is that we, the, the nature of the world has shrunk and we all live in a global village, if you will. Um, so do we need to rethink that jurisprudence? That's a very big question. But what I would say is, just in the interest of time, what I would say is that priority remains, and this is what my, the, the position that I'm most comfortable with, is that priority does remain first to family relations that are destitute most in need of zakah money. If none of your family members are, and or they won't accept zakah money, sometimes, you know, they, they're just, people don't, don't want to. Um, then the second a level are pressing needs within your community. Um, third, I would say are causes that further or the interest of Muslims at large. Now, the reason that this is a position that I'm most comfortable with is that we have to recognize the challenges of every age. Um, Muslims now don't have a back that they don't have a um, uh, they they don't have a shelter they don't have um, uh, supporting institutions or a network that further helps and protects Muslims worldwide. Uh, so, for instance, the issue of Islamophobia affects us all. It affects all Muslims all around the world. Now, if you try to fight Islamophobia locally, that doesn't make very much sense. You're, you're not going to try be, be successfully try to fight Islamophobia by um, funding organizations that work in Syria or funding organizations that work in Egypt. The reality of the world that we live in has shifted the center of power away from Muslim lands, which means that there is a pressing need that we recognize this reality and recognize that what impacts a Muslim is no longer territorially defined. What impacts the interests of Islam is no longer just a, uh, you know, what, what, are, happens with, within my borders. Um, our ability to know of the suffering of others and our ability to reach others have greatly expanded. So for me, it, what, what, when you talk about your locality, my realm of consciousness is very different than it was for people a thousand years ago. So my to to, uh, to try to 
just practically uh, spell it out, so to speak. Um, no, do not give zakah to governmental institutions if you have reason to believe that they are corrupt or inefficient. Two, if you know of a pressing need with people within your immediate circle, then give them preference. Three, when you, beyond these two elements, give your zakah where the interests of Muslims can be furthered the most around the world, globally, uh, because that's what's important. The other thing I want to add is that a lot of Muslims talk about zakah as if is um, as if it is the entire discharge of their financial obligations towards God. Please remember that zakah, the, the the whole premise of zakah, is that it is the minimum amount, the minimum amount that a Muslim should give. The, the minimum sadaqah, so to speak, is the zakat. Because if you think about it, it, it is over money. It's a very low percentage, 2.5%. On money that has been, that exceeds your needs and has been um, non-circulating for over, for a year, an entire howl. It is as if Allah is saying, well, if you're not going to, you know, this is the minimum that you have to discharge. But remember that every time the Quran talks about people who spend in the way of Allah, people who yujahidu bi amwalihim wa anfusihim, those who are, are in doing jihad with their money and themselves, it always talks about yatasaddaqun, about sadaqah, which means that don't think of zakah as your entire financial obligation. And it's a very dangerous trap that Muslims fall in, is that, oh, as long as I pay the zakah, I'm fine. No, the zakah is simply the least that you can do, the minimum amount that you can do. Beyond the zakah, you have an obligation to clean your money, to tahir amwalak with sadaqah. By, by giving generously for, in, in the way of God, for, for the purpose of pleasing God. And remember that the money that you own, is, you are simply entrusted with this money. It's not yours. None, none of this money that I own is mine. It, it all belongs to Allah, and Allah has entrusted me with it. So my attitude towards this money is that what what I actually, what is blessed out of my entire wealth is whatever money I expend in the way of Allah, not the money that I retain for myself. So what I'm, whatever money I actually end up spending on myself, I think of it as wasted money. Whatever money I spend on my children for their basic needs um, is blessed money. But Whatever money goes to spoil my children, to 
get to indulge beyond their needs is money that's not blessed. Whatever money I spend in the way of Allah is blessed money. Whatever money I indulge myself with is not blessed. And it could be a curse upon, upon me. So your attitude towards money, must, you think of the zakah, yes, but beyond the zakah, always think of, are you among al-mutasaddiqun? Are you among those who, are, who have the right attitude towards the wealth that they're entrusted with or not? Okay, thank you, alhamdulillah. Sorry, I, I'm, one of my roles today is also dog whisperer. <laughs> so <laughs> my German Shepherd keeps needing to... <coughs> Doogie! All right, sorry. <laughs> this is, I don't know what he's picking up on, but he has to, uh, he has to weigh in and I will go and calm him down in just a second. But, so let's, let's take this to kind of an interesting place. Maybe he's picking up on my next question, which has to do with the paranormal. He's, he's very protective. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I literally need to like sit next to him and calm him down. So I can't sit here. I have to sit over there. Yes, he's spoiled. I know. Okay. So, all right. So, but staying with the theme of Ramadan, um, I had some queries. <coughs> excuse me. I had some queries regarding the narration of the Prophet. Um, the Prophet, peace be and blessings be upon him. Um, when Ramadan begins, this is, uh, she's quoting from a, um, a tradition of the prophet from Bukhari. When Ramadan begins, the gates of paradise are opened and the gates of hell are closed and the devils are chained up. Narrated by Bukhari 3277, Muslim 1079, and also Al-Nasai. And the most evil jinn are chained up. Is this an authentic narration? Is it metaphorical? As in, um, Muslims will experience... Doogie. Muslims will experience increased guidance, more aligned with the angelic realm and a state of expanded consciousness, or do we understand it to mean the entire demonic realm is closed off? How do we understand the evil in our world if this hadith is sahih? And um, there's an, another, the second part of it is also what does that mean for Satan worshippers and people who are into black magic, real or perceived, or clairvoyance, child abusers, domestic violence, etc. And could it have only applied to the time of the prophet when the doors of revelation were open, or is it throughout time? Okay, yeah, this hadith, um, uh, it's a rather uh, well-known hadith. It's you, you. I mean, it's cited quite often that uh, when Ramadan comes, the gates of the heavens are open, um, and the shayateen, the uh, the devils are chained or restrained. One. You know, whenever you deal with the ulum al-hadith, it's a very big issue. So we always have to put that caveat in because that that you, you spend an entire lifetime um, uh, studying ulum al-hadith, and and it's you know you you don't that's not even enough. Um, you one lifetime is insufficient, uh, but. 
to, to cut to the chase of it, the hadith is declared sahih. It's declared authentic. In other words, in other words, the chain of transmission is valid, is a plausible chain of transmission according to ulum al-hadith. So someone heard, someone heard the Prophet say, and that someone told someone, and that someone told someone, and that someone told someone, until it reached Bukhari. And when we say that according to the standards that Bukhari set, that this hadith is sahih, we have to remember that what we are saying is that the chain itself, according to the standards that we have set for examining chains of transmission, it's a, it's a, it holds up. That chain holds up. Now, when it comes to issue of aqidah, when it comes to issue of issues that involve the the Islamic faith itself, the the heart and soul of um, uh, uh, Islamic belief. Remember that aqidah is what could determine your fate in the hereafter, and it could determine what who is a good Muslim from a bad Muslim. Is it sufficient that one or two or three or four chains of transmission holds up for me to say this is an element of aqidah? My answer is no. And a lot of the usulis, and that's a big difference between Ahl al-Hadith and the historical usulis, is that when, when you are talking about matters of aqidah, there has to be a cumulative evidence that this transmission that relates to a question of aqidah is in fact a valid one. So can I say that this hadith is false? No, I can't. But can I say I know that the Prophet said it? No, I can't. So when I cite a hadith like this, I am citing it with the caveat that there is a chance, not clear and convincing evidence, not probability, but there's an opportunity, there's a chance, maybe 20%, 30%, that the Prophet ﷺ either said this or said something like this. Now, remember, and, and this is a point that maybe specialists will will or people who are students of Islamic studies, they, they can understand what I'm talking about more readily. Um, but remember that Hadith narrations, which narrate part of history, they are subject to the epistemologies of narration of their age. In other words, when we read the Hadith, is this the way people really talked in the past? 
No, not necessarily. But this is the way people preserved the memory of what people said in the past. So let me give you a very practical example. We, after the age of theater and drama and poetry and, you know, all the, the, the things that have developed in, in the past centuries, the way we preserve reality, when, when academics talk about history, they have a style, which we call an academic style, of their own, Right? Playwrights have this, a different, very, very different style of representing memory of the pasts. Poets have a very different style. These styles vary not just by from one age to another, but they also vary from one geographic, one culture to another. So, a lot of modern Muslims, when they read hadith, they think that in fact. So I'll give you a very practical example. A lot of hadiths, you'll have someone come to the Prophet and they ask him a question and the Prophet answers it. And then they repeat the question and the Prophet answers it. And they repeat the question and the Prophet answers it. It's always three times. It's always three times. Is that really the way people talked in the past? That someone would come and say, would ask a question and then repeat it three times and get the answer three times? No, that's a topoi. It's a topoi, a way of people preserving the memory of something that the Prophet underscored or emphasized. It takes a great deal of understanding literary styles to understand that it's it, it methods of representing history rather than an actual living picture of history. So why am I saying this about this hadith? Although it's sahih, I don't follow that school that just because it got the label of Sahih by Bukhari, that means we know for sure that the Prophet said it. I think it takes an enormous amount of historical ignorance to make that type of claim. But it also takes an enormous amount of historical ignorance to say that whether it is Sahih or not means the Prophet said it or didn't say it. In other words, I cannot, I cannot dismiss it as, as uh, is there a chance that the Prophet said it? Yes. It, the way is it preserve, preserved, is it meant to be understood literally? No, because I know that from studying the literary style of Arabs of that day and age, when they want, would want to say that during the blessed nights of Ramadan, blessings increase and Allah is, in, is there to answer people's prayers, they could, in, through literary style, talk about the devils being chained. So to put it more concretely, do I understand this hadith to mean that the, the, the actual demons 
are going to be actually chained with, with, with literal chains. Absolutely not. And again, then you are, you, are you are imposing the epistemology of modern consciousness upon a literary style that was very different and a way of speaking that was very different and and that is why I don't I, I, I don't like it when when laity, when Muslims who are not trained and not uh, sufficiently educated just help themselves to reading hadith, because they they don't have the academic tools to read history. I mean, we often lack the academic tools to read the history that is a hundred years ago. You know, to read the history of colonialism. Leave alone, read history that is fourteen hundred years ago. So don't take this hadith as meaning that you know if I'm going to see a demon, I'm going to see this demon in chains. <laughs> no, in fact, I can tell you that in Ramadan, uh, people who are possessed they continue to be possessed all around the world. People who need exorcisms they they still need exorcisms. The, if you have a demonic encounter, you will not see chained anything. Demons are around, and they're part of our reality, and they continue their nefarious work. Um, but I can also tell you that in the month of Ramadan, for those who pursue Allah, not for those who sit on, on their butts and, and are not interested in Allah, but for those who pursue Allah, the, 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 without a doubt, there are there is a barakah in the air. You know, it, it, it does not literally mean that there are an increased number of angels occupying space. Uh, th these are ghaibiyat. I can't say that. This is something that belongs to the divine realm. What I can say is that prayers have a heightened status, that the ability of people to receive Allah's blessings during the, the nights of Ramadan uh, are definitely in a heightened status. And it, a wise person would pursue Allah and the blessings of Allah in the nights and months of Ramadan uh, because prayers have a... Because the entire circumstances of the heavens are there to help you and assist you, but it doesn't literally mean that fusilat al-shayatin that the, the shaitans will be chained up with actual chains, and it doesn't re really mean that the shayatin are perished from space and and, and existence. Uh, they continue to exist and they continue to function, and you know, in the realm. They know, but I and you will never know whether in the reality that they live in, whether they, they lose any of their relative power vis-a-vis -vis angels or whether there are restrictions on their activities that we will never know about and we should not speculate about. We, we should, you know, we, all we can say is that we understand this hadith within its historical context, within its epistemological context, within the context of the way we understand traditions attributed to the Prophet and it underscores that the barakah 
that exists during the nights and days of Ramadan. But it's not an end of evil during Ramadan. There's a lot of, you know. I was saying there's a lot of evil. Okay. Alhamdulillah, my German shepherd is taking a nap. <laughs> okay. So let's, um, one more question related to fasting. Um, so this is someone who wrote from Northern Europe who lives in Sweden. The times for fasting are quite long here, and the fast can become almost 22 hours long in the summer. And on the other hand, winter has a very short fast, about six hours. What are the rulings in such, such situations? Um, and what about prayer timings in general? Because during the summer, the prayers are far apart between Maghrib and Isha, and also the opposite during the winter time. And the prayers are so, oh, sorry, and the prayers sometimes are so close that Zohar and Asr are almost joined together in the winter. Um, and then by five o'clock in the afternoon, all five prayers are done. So. By five o'clock in the afternoon? It's at, at some times of the day, mm. yeah. Okay, yeah, the, the question of fasting in, in um, countries like that, that has an issue that has been, subhanAllah, it's been discussed for um, a very long time and um, uh, we have a, a, a large number of fatawa on it and it's been addressed even centuries ago, but more recently, relatively, it was addressed by um, uh, especially Egyptian jurists in the beginning of the 20th century. And so it's sort of an issue that, that has come up time again and again. And there are the most famous position is that in countries where the days are so long uh, and the nights are so short that fasting would constitute a real mashaka, a real hardship, is that people in these countries should fast according to the closest Muslim country to them. So, now, of course, this is, these are fatawa that were, were, were issued long before the, the, the um, uh, long below, before modern technology and flight and so on. So, uh, what they had in mind was that you, you think of the closest bulk of Muslim states and you start fasting and you break fast with the time zone of the Muslim states. Another opinion said that rather you divide the day into if I remember, it was something like, um, basically, so you end up doing eight hours of fasting. So you calculate, you break the, the day into three-thirds, if I remember correctly, and I don't remember exactly the math, how it would work, but that you end up fasting eight days. My advice is that if this is a mashakka, if the, because when I was, uh, I remember a time where I would, was Ramadan came along and we were in Denmark or Sweden or something like that and we would break fast 
like 10.30 at night. Which is, and that is a real hardship for a lot of people. And for people who, and, and that would constitute a hardship for them. Then in the breaking, dividing the day so that you do eight hours of fasting, or in the alternative, you could just see what, um, especially the North African countries, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, uh, their hours of starting to fast and breaking a fast and follow their time zones. Some people have said, no, you need to follow Saudi because of Mecca and Medina. So you, break, you start fasting and you break fast with them. Um, I don't have a position on that. You know, if, that's another opinion, is that you, you model your fasting after Mecca and uh, the Hijaz, basically. Um, the short of it, whichever of these opinions you take, that's all acceptable. But don't put yourself uh, through the absurdity of fasting 20 hours a day uh, because I, that, that's not, you know, that's not, Allah doesn't want to torture us. That's not the, the point. What I do suggest is that Muslims in these countries would get together and unify a standard so that they all, they decide on a standard, whether they're going to follow Saudi or they're going to follow Morocco or they're going to just follow the, the mathematics and um they would just need someone to help them get the fatawa that work out the math because I remember reading these. Uh, just have an, you know, create an association or something that in which you come to some type of agreement as to what standard you're going to follow, or at least for those who are unable to do a 20 hour a day fast. And I actually don't recommend them. I mean, because they, they alienate our children, they misrepresent our religion, they, they, there's all types of problems with these very long fasts. Um, as to prayer, that's a more complex issue, but the nutshell of it is Fuqaha throughout history have said about these types of countries um, is to Combine the time for prayer so that you pray Fajr and then you pray Dhuhr and Asr together and you pray Maghrib and Aisha together. Which is something that the Prophet ﷺ did for a reason and no reason, where you combine prayers. So combining prayers where you effectively praying five prayers three times a day is entirely acceptable in, in these countries where long days or long nights or... Um, in, in um, unusual time zones. Okay. So we're going to move to uh, something a little heavier. Um, the question is, I was wondering if I could make a request for a specific topic. Salat al-Rahim, kinship ties. Specifically, what exactly does it entail to which family members and how would it, how would it apply to kin who might do you harm? 
for example, narcissists. This includes any degree of physical violence as well as verbal, emotional abuse, threats of any kind, damage to property or other forms of retaliation. For example, when you resist their attempts, to attempts at dominance. Also, what to do if they marry or befriend people that are dangerous, including violent people, scam artists, thereby exposing you or your family members to risk. Finally, what to do if they actively rob you, family members or society, or have done so in the past and might be at risk of doing it again. Oh, Salat al-Rahim. Yeah, Salat al-Rahim is a concept of um, kindness and discharging your obligations towards family. Uh, the, the core of it are the hadiths attributed to the Prophet that effectively say that someone who severs the ties of kinship will not enter heaven. Um, so the, the, the very serious emphasis in the Islamic tradition about uh, maintaining and honoring and protecting the ties of kinship. And when we say ties of kinship, it's you know your, your, your relatives, your mother, your father, your siblings, your cousins, your uncles, your so on and so forth. Um, and that you, you owe them kindness and mercy, you owe them care. So you, you are also obligated to take care of them in their time of need to make sure that they are, uh, uh, that there is a firm bond of kinship and love and, friendly, and friendship and, and so on between blood relations. Now, having said that, let us, let's be very clear because this time sometimes gets distorted into a form of tribalism. Let's remember that at the same time the Quran and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emphasize Silat al-Rahm and the firm ties of kinship, that the early Muslims, you, you know, children would convert and their parents would not. Or a wife would convert and the husband would not. Or a sister would convert and a brother would not. And uh, that, not only this, but that it, in, in several of the battle, battles fought in Badr and Uhud and um, Hunayn and Ghazwat al-Khandaq, uh, blood relations confronted each other in the battlefield. I mean, and this is something that we, you know, is a very, um, there's a lot of sira um, that we can talk about, about this issue. The fact that ultimately morality matters. And when I say morality here, I say the morality of being a Muslim versus a non-Muslim who is hostile to the faith. And so the, 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 
they ended up meeting each other in in the battlefront. But even in something that is perhaps even more relevant is that we have to remember that, for instance, the uh, the son of um, what's his name, um, the the head of the hypocrites in in Medina. His son was actually a good Muslim, and we have a lot of narratives about the tensions and hostilities between the father, who is the head of the hypocrites, and the son, who was a sound, good Muslim. Of course, you know, the Quran gives, gets us even closer to this by saying there is a difference between obedience and kindness, that if you are told to do, of course, the Quran talks about in jihadak if they try to force you to be in a state of kufr, but kufr here, as many ulama have commented and, and, and talked about over centuries, is not just a state of kufr billah, it's not just being a kafir billah, but if if your parents try to get you to do, or any blood relations, try to get you to do something that is wrong, something that is immoral, something that is haram, don't obey, but be kind. Be kind to them. In other words, avoid ugliness, avoid meanness, avoid the type of um, animosity that only makes things worse, that exasperates evil, rather than give a chance for people to wake up from their from their uh, from their ghafla, a chance that, uh, people to wake up from the wrong path they're on. So more concretely, Salat al-Rahm means I am there for you when you need me, but I will not help you do something that is wrong. It doesn't mean that I'm there for you, that I will that I will support you. And, you know, someone that says, my, if someone has a brother, because this actually came up in the, a long time ago. Uh, the, the, a guy who had a, a brother who had a gambling problem. And he, uh, his, uh, he comes to me and he says... Uh, you know, my brother keeps borrowing money from me and wasting it in, in, in gambling. And, I, you know, I, I said, well, so why do you continue to give him money? Well, isn't this Salat al-Rahm? No, that's not Salat al-Rahm. Salat al-Rahm doesn't mean that you participate in haram. Uh, Salat al-Rahm doesn't mean that I help my sibling or my father or my mother if they're committing haram, whatever that haram is. Haram sometimes... Doesn't it doesn't need to be gambling? Doesn't need to be consuming alcohol, but it could be wasting money on luxury. So you know, my my father or my mother wants to waste 
at a time when when so many Muslims are in grave need and they're, 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 the Palestinians are going through what they're going through and they're the Yemenis and there are the Syrians and there are the Libyans and and a great amount of hardship. You know, you have parents that want to splurge on, I don't know what, huh? Um, expensive vacations or what people do in their homes. Um, remodeling. You know, I've, I've seen people do ridiculous things like, I know this family that basically the mother wanted to live in a $4 million home and was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on remodeling. Is it Salat al-Rahm for the son to keep funding that? No, that's haram. That's not Salat al-Rahm. Salat al-Rahm never means that you participate in haram. Uh, I've had several situations where a woman comes to me and says, um, this is uh, these the, the disturbing situations of sexual abuse. Well, does Salat al-Rahm mean that you know, I, I don't like to be with my parent alone uh, because I don't feel safe. Well, Salat al-Rahm wouldn't tell you, put yourself in danger. Salat al-Rahm doesn't mean that you have to put yourself in a situation where you facilitate abuse, which is haram. Again, you can't be a participant in what is haram. Now, going I've known several situations that have come up where you're not you're talking about past trauma and re-traumatization. Silatul Rahm means that it does not require you to injure yourself. So there's a difference between saying you know. Uh, Let's say a, a child who was abused by a parent, and now they're grown up. To say to your parent, well, you've abused me in the past, so I don't want to know you, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to see you, that's wrong. But you do what you can handle for your healing. So if you tell your parent, because of this injury, because of this trauma, in order to heal, in order to try to forgive, and again, you know, it's what, it's what, Allah doesn't require more of you than what you can handle. So, some people can forgive in their lifetime. Some people can't. Is it a goal to work towards? Yes, it's a goal. But I'm not going to injure you in order to demand that you forgive. Some people that have been traumatized in the past can speak and deal with their, their abuser without being re-traumatized every second. But some people can't. So you tell your parent, because of that past, I'm not going to be talking to you every day, but if you need me, in other words, you're going to become homeless. You need food, you know, or you need someone to pay your electrical bill or someone to pay. I will do that. Why I will do that? Because not because of you, but because of Allah. So when someone says, how about verbal and emotional abuse? If someone is 
abusing you, whether physically or emotionally or, or verbally, think about your own role. If you are a, an, if you are an enabler to abuse, then you are participating in something that is not blessed, is not good. So someone has a mother or has, and actually this is a real story. Uh, there, there was this uh, woman that said, you know, my father gets angry, and when he gets, you know, every time we I'm over at the, we're having dinner, he starts cussing and swearing, and uh, I said, well, every time you are, you enable that type of behavior, you validate it, and you cannot, you're not in a position. To tell to to um, restrain this type of conduct, but you have no obligation to subjugate yourself in, 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 to this type of conduct in a habitual and regular way. You are under an obligation to be there for him. If one of these days he he needs you, in other words, you know, you need someone to pay his rent, someone to pay his electricity, someone to uh, pay his uh, his medical bills. That's Salatul Rahm. Salatul Rahm is never a vehicle for ugliness. And those who turn Salatul Rahm into a, la into a whip, into a, a stick to beat people with, because of Salatul Rahm, you must subjugate yourself to abuse. You must make yourself, you must submit yourself to my abuse and my power and my... Uh, psychotic conduct. No, that's not Salat Rahm. That, that, Salat Rahm is never a vehicle for ugliness. Salat Rahm is the principle that we owe people obligations because Allah wants us to maintain a certain code of conduct and code of care towards each other that never reaches the point where we simply abandon each other to live on the streets or to perish. But it varies enormously. So if, if you have, uh, what did it say about stealing? Uh, what if they actively rob you? Don't, don't put yourself in a situation to be robbed. You know, I actually know an Egyptian family uh, this um, guy had siblings and he would complain all the time to his children and to his wife that he, he wrote a, a power of attorney to his uh, brothers and they used that power of attorney to steal his money, to, to wipe him clean. And he was bitter and he complained all the time and and when they they came to me and said, well, did you ask, did you demand your money back? Yes, and they basically ignored me. Well, did you cancel the power of attorney? Well, how about Salat al-Rahm? No, that's ridiculous. You don't put yourself in a situation to be robbed. Now, they rob you. Do, do you have an obligation to, uh, to curse them and to disown them? No, you don't do that. But you do tell them very firmly that your robbery makes you a thief and sariqah is haram and I will never condone your behavior. And so 
I this you I condemn your conduct and I refuse to have an ongoing working relationship with you or working alaqa um, uh, a, a relation with you until you return your robbery because I cannot condone robbery the, the it's the principle itself so Salat al-Rahm can never become a vehicle for immorality because that's what I especially I see this among um, immigrant communities because I know you know in, in Egypt and in a lot of Arab countries uh, I've seen many situations where basically Salat al-Rahm becomes a vehicle for haram it's like for instance wasta to get people appointed or hired in positions that they are not entitled to. No, Salat al-Rahm can never become a vehicle for haram. Salat al-Rahm cannot be a vehicle for evil. That was not what is intended from that concept. And, uh, and Allah, what is remarkable is that the writing on this is actually quite clear. It's, it's not even a controversial issue, a debatable issue, it's an issue of just willful ignorance that people ignore, engage in um, for social, sociological reasons that are often unfortunate. Does that answer the question? How about dealing with narcissists? I, narcissism, narcissism, I'm not sure. I mean, because we we use often the word narcissist in its in a non scientific way, in a sort of subjective way. So we, you know, I might be a narcissist, but not know it. Um, just be careful. Be careful. that you're not being unfair to others. Um, have a very strong moral code. You know that what is, what, is, what is haram from what is not haram. You know, someone who's selfish um, or someone who talks about themselves all the time, uh, you know, I, because I actually, you know, I have relatives when, whenever I, uh, in the old days, when I, ever I would be with them, all they do is talk about themselves. So I minimize conduct, uh, minimize interactions. So on the Eid, you know, I, I'm there, I, I perform my duty, I'm there for an hour. Uh, I sit politely as they go off talking nonsense for the hour and then I say, Salaamu Alaikum, if you need anything, you know, um, uh, let me know. And, and I've done my duty. And But, but does Salat Rahim obligate me then to subjugate myself to, to more than that? Do I have to accept every dinner invitation that they extend? No. Do, do I have to take their phone calls every time they call? No. Uh, uh, you know, do, do I have relatives where... Salat al-Rahm, they, they always know that I am there. Of all the family members that if, if, if they're ever in serious need, they know they could come to me. But they also know that I, you know, they get a sense that I, all, and I don't cherish their company and that in, in fact I try to avoid their company. Um, there's nothing haram in that. 
Okay, so we're gonna go to a little lighter topic um, for a, a breather, um, although this might cause some emotion too. <laughs> so I've had this question on my mind for so long. I looked everywhere to see if Dr. Abel has a fatwa online, but I could not find anything. It may not be the most pressing question today, but it is important to me and to so many women. I've read and heard many different responses to this and I don't know what to believe. My question is regarding the permissibility of nail polish and prayer. Does it matter if it's artificial or just paint? I've heard some say that if someone has polish on prior to ablution, one should still make ablution and pray without necessarily having to remove it, while others have went as far to say that prayer is completely rejective, rejected if one has nail polish on prior to performing ablution. I know that Muslim businesses are capitalizing on the idea of breathable polish. Does it matter if it is breathable but not permeable? Is there something to this concept? I'm asking for myself and for my friends who feel at times a little anxious to be seen with manicured nails in Muslim spaces, especially in the mosque. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, I mean, for as long as I was growing up, um, I remember nail polish being discussed for the since I was 12 years old. Um, so it's amazing. There's there's just certain issues that never seem to um, go away. Um, most most modern because no, nail polish is a is a is a modern issue i mean there are parallels there are things that we can do ps on um uh, but the 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 extent to which the illa in this qiyas is the same is where the the debates happen the t debates take place um so most fuqaha or ulama said that nail polish is ha'il, that nail polish is um, because it is uh, non-permeable and it covers the nails and the water doesn't penetrate it, that your wudu is not valid unless the nail polish is either removed or you you have the the and I and I don't know much about this new nail polish that's supposed to be permeable other than what I've just seen. You know I don't know if it's really permeable or not or or why they claim it's permeable permeable and all of that. Um, okay, so that's the position of most, and what that of course ends up creating difficulty for a lot of women who want to wear nail polish or want to wear gloss or whatever uh, because they every time they want to do do then they have to have it removed uh, and they you know if they put it on it becomes a struggle to keep the the wudu etc etc um my own position on this after and I've shifted positions on this a long time ago. I used to agree with the majority position. I don't agree with the majority position, or at least the majority that I've seen in, in, in published works that I've seen. I don't believe that nail polish invalidates your wudu. Um, 
whether permeable or non-permeable or uh, whatnot. Be, why? Because the evidence, the evidence that I have seen that Allah intended for the wudu, for the water in wudu to reach your nails is missing. So I have no evidence that isbagh al-wudu meant that Allah had a specific intent and will as to fingernails. I, I just don't... Yes, Allah wanted us to wash our hands. Yes, Allah wanted us to wash our face. But the evidence on exactly where the water needs to reach when we wash our face... Um, I mean, just so you see how how um, how uh, non unilateral, non unilateral, or how multilateral the evidence is. If you just look at the chapters on wudu in books of fiqh, you you find just tons, pages and pages and pages, these endless debates that I don't think are useful anymore, because these debates used to function as sort of mental gymnastics for training jurists. But in, in practice, in real life, I don't see evidence that earlier Muslims were as paranoid about their wudu as modern Muslims. And I think the reason that modern Muslims become paranoid about their, their wudu in this fashion um, is because of a sense of loss of priorities. I think the more that because there is no if if there is if there was cumulative evidence the water that when Allah wanted us to wash our hands Allah intended that the water wash every parts of our hands well we now know that when you actually wash your hands water don't reach between your fingers does this mean and and I learned from healthcare people that the to make sure water reaches your fingers, you have to go like this. Well, there, there's no evidence that in wudu we Allah intended for the water to reach through between our fingers. So there, no no evidence that there is a command to go like this, for instance. In other words, make sure that you wash between your fingers. Why? Because wudu is not about water reaching to this spot or that spot. It's an act of purification. You are a state of salah the minute you enter wudu. You're, you're, you, you are symbolically cleaning your sins away. When you do your wudu, you imagine that the water is cleaning your sins away. That's why we do wudu. So, this entire... Um, obsession that has been going on for years about nail polish is just um, unfortunate. And I, my feeling is, leave women alone. You know, it, it, this is such a, this is such a, a small issue for those who are uncomfortable 
and the nail polish is not a big part of their life and they want they want to not wear nail polish and and do what they will do without nail polish fine for those who want to have nail polish and do their wudu with nail polish may Allah accept from them and it's only Allah because the evidence is unclear anyone that tells you the evidence is clear is is not being accurate is not being truthful both so may Allah accept from them Let, let's leave this issue alone now the, the part that I cannot address is the issue of community because I've seen in some Muslim communities Women who wear nail polish and then they're doing the salah and then some, you know, old hajjiyah or uh, an auntie type, uh, oh, you know, did you do your do with your nail polish, then your salah, you know, and then this type of conduct alienates women from mosques and it makes them not want to go to Islamic centers. And when they don't, when you're, when the wife doesn't go to the Islamic center, the children don't go to the Islamic center. And we all end up paying the cost because of nail polish or because of the way you cover your hair. When are we Muslims going to, I mean, Jerusalem is, Al-Quds is lost. They're destroying the Islamic faith in, in, in Saudi and the Emirat and Egypt. The Syria is bleeding, the, the Rohingyas, all the, the disasters around the world. And we are, on the case of Muslim women, because of their nail polish, leave Muslim women alone. Stop bothering them. You know, you want to talk to them about uh, uh, how we can help Syrian refugees? I'm for that. You want to talk about how we can save the Rohingyas? I'm for that. How we can boycott China because of the genocide against Muslims? I'm for that. You want to get Muslim women involved in taking care of orphans in Syria? I'm for that. But you want to talk to Muslim women about their nail polish? No. That, that's that's a, a demeaning of the role of Muslim women. You know, people act according to how you treat them. If you are gazing at them and engaging your, their intellect, they become smarter. If you look at them and you restrict the role to physicalities, they act accordingly. And the cost that we all bear, because women are the influencers of our children, the cost that we bear is the way our children grow up. You know, our children, so many families now, so many families, even imams in mosques, I can't tell you how many imams, people who have worked as imams in, in this mosque and that mosque, uh, they have a child who is, uh, is an addict or a child who committed suicide or a child who converted to Christianity or a child who's an atheist. Or, and we just, and they're, all, they're all ashamed of it and they don't talk about these things. They, they, they hide what's going on with their children and they don't ask themselves, how are we collectively responsible for what happened to our children? We are responsible because we alienated them with minutia. They, they, we, they didn't feel that they can exist in Muslim space comfortably and in a dignified way. 
Because when a Muslim woman is there praying and she's, you know, concentrating in her prayer and she's being moved by the by, by prayer, and then a woman, an auntie, comes to her and talks to her about her nail polish, it's like a cold shower or cold water being dumped on her head. She takes her out of her spirituality. It takes her out of her her zone of of of, of confidence and and being and integrity. She feels very small, and she feels like, you know, I want to get away. So please stop bothering Muslim women. And, and you know, my as, as my fatwa to you is wear your nail polish, do your wudu, don't pay the, the ex, ex, ridiculous prices for that people have created. They always end up creating a problem and then making a profit from it. Uh, you know the permeable uh, nail polish with so on. Don't pay the exorbitant prices for it. That that's my my uh, fatwa. You know, for whatever it's worth.